with interesting people about their game-changing ideas, fresh initiatives and out-of-the-box movements with an eye on the future. Today my guest is Dr Jane Thomason. Dr Thomason is a thought leader in the application of blockchain technology to solve big social problems, a global ambassador for the British Blockchain Association. She's a frequent commentator and blogger on blockchain tech and the significant positive social impact the tech can drive. In 2017 alone, she spoke at blockchain and disruptive technology conferences on social impact in London, Washington, Silicon Valley, Port Moresby, Jakarta, Singapore, Ottawa, Sydney and Brisbane. Dr. Thomason is also a well-respected writer and an advisor to several blockchain startups looking to solve global problems and is currently working with collaborators to co-develop blockchain proof of concepts for financial inclusion, identity, government services and microgrid solar energy in Papua New Guinea, Indonesia and India. She was a judge and mentor at London Blockchain Week, London Fintech Week and the Consensus Blockchain for Social Impact Coalition Hackathon. She's a strong advocate for the education and empowerment of women generally and women in blockchain and is part of the founding team for the World Blockchain Academy for Girls. Jane, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time out today. Thanks, Lizzie. It's totally my pleasure. Great. So listen, you've been travelling a fair bit already this year. Can you tell us a little bit of what, about what you've been doing? Uh, yeah, sure. Look, um, I was actually reflecting this year I've been to the US, Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, Korea, London, Paris um, and the US again. Um, but most of it's been around my work in blockchain. So probably... One of the, the two highlights of the trip were going to London Blockchain Week, which was our 12-month anniversary from the very first blockchain conference I ever went to. And we, again, the Bank of Papua New Guinea sponsored the London Blockchain Week hackathon, and it was extraordinary. We had 200 people from 40 different countries, forming wow. 30 all working on problems of developing countries. It was specifically around Papua New Guinea, but it could apply to any very, very different remote location. So that was just an incredible experience. Um, it was almost impossible to pick the winner. And and mm. I was thinking while we were doing it, this is a, like a new way of trying to engage some of the world's best minds to think about problems that we've been dealing with for decades. So I think that was, you know, the number one really interesting thing that I did. And the second one was that we we were invited by UN Women, we were shortlisted to demonstrate a proof of concept that we've been working on over the last 12 months that's really designed for last mile populations. And so we went into a simulated refugee camp. There were seven different companies stationed in this simulated refugee camp and then over three days we had to demonstrate our tech and make our pitch to 500 people 
So by the end of it, well, wow. I don't know by the end of it, I don't think any of this is what we were saying. But one thing for me was that suddenly I realised the power of what we'd been doing because we were standing there in New York demonstrating this technology which allows for the creation of unique identity, transfer of digital money and microgrid trading of solar power. And we were sent there in New York and in three seconds we were making a microtransaction of, of digital money to a woman in a very remote village in Papua New Guinea. And that suddenly became very powerful when we were standing in New York and we knew that in three seconds this woman that we knew was receiving money onto her digital wallet. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, I'm kind of interested to know about what you've been doing but also what's led you there because I don't think, I mean, I know that from the reading that I've done, you're very interested in projects that have great social impact globally. But you haven't always worked with blockchain. It's just blockchain has really emerged of late. So what is it about blockchain that's really scaling you up and and getting the kind of traction that you're getting? So what I have done for most of my career is work in developing countries Um, largely in the health sector, but more recently looking at problems around governance, women's empowerment, poverty, um, inequality. And so I'm very familiar with really, really difficult environments where people have very little, where they have no infrastructure and they're not connected to government services and they're not connected to the economy and it's very, very difficult for them to um, be connected they're unbanked and they don't have identities, so they don't have any kind of economic connection. So that I know very well. And what I started to realise with this uh, blockchain, the capacity for it to be very fast, very efficient, very transparent and allow for decentralised peer-to-peer transactions, um, I suddenly started thinking about how this could overcome some of those barriers that have prevented the bottom billion from accessing services and economic development. And then when I started exploring it, one thing that became clear was that a lot of people, but not all who are developing blockchain solutions, are developing them in Australia, in New York, in London, in places where there's fast internet, electricity, they've all got smartphones, and so doing things on apps is really easy. Yeah. But what I wanted to community was the challenge what if you don't have a smartphone what if you don't have electricity what if you don't have internet connectivity can you still do this and I think this is the beauty of some of the work that we've been doing is that um, this particular piece of work that we took to the UN doesn't need a smartphone doesn't need electricity doesn't need internet and so it can allow people with only a 2G mobile phone to be able to establish a unique identity, hash it up onto the blockchain, and then send and receive digital money, trade small amounts of microgrid solar energy, and then start to plug into all sorts of other services. So the way we were describing it in New York is sort of almost like a service ATM for the village. So instead of people from remote areas having to leave their village to go and connect to the economy, it's connecting the economy to the village, which is 
a really transformational idea. It's incredible. And if this is something that, well, it is incredible. And, and I think, you know, it can really change the lives of many, many people and create micro economies in places that are currently not connected to the world economy. But even things like, um, I know that in some countries there are landless labourers, but in many countries people own the land that their village sits on. It's often customary land, but nevertheless they own it. So if you can get them identity and if you can get the land um, measured and registered and posted up on the blockchain, it gives them the opportunity to be able to borrow money against the one asset that they do own so that they can then engage in economic projects and do lots of things that they've you know, probably always dreamed about but never had the capacity to do. So I think it is world-changing and I certainly would like to keep working with this and see if we can't get it to scale to show just the changes that it can make, um, you know, for that bottom billion population. I'd be really interested to know what the uh, response was from the UN. They must have been feeling that you provide some level of magic with the tech and that kind of capacity in a in a remote remote global village in in Papua New Guinea, for instance. So we're still waiting to hear because the UN are going to select um, one or two of the companies to co-develop their project with. So we haven't heard yet how we went. But what I can say, just on the basis of the level of interest with people coming through, I think people were really once they understood what it was that they were doing, what we were doing, because there's a lot of identity applications, there's a lot of remittance applications, but there's yeah. not them that are really focused um, on those really hard to reach low infrastructure populations. So we certainly had a lot of interest with the, the people coming through and um, we've yet to hear yet whether we've actually been nominated as one of the winning companies. Well, I'll be watching that space very carefully then. Something that I've really admired in you is that you do drive conversations away from the cryptocurrency money. So we all know that the cryptocurrency space is underpinned by blockchain. And, you know, you are more interested in focusing more importantly on the projects that are uh, addressing issues in society today. How do you see people are, are kind of engaging with blockchain tech? I mean, do you notice that it's different from one country to another? You've obviously, you're visiting a lot of countries. Are there some countries that are more engaged than others? Look, I think it varies. And I think there's no doubt, as you pointed out, that the first thing that people have heard about is cryptocurrency. Um, this doesn't yeah. always have a positive impact on the conversation because a lot of people are sceptical, scared of the volatility, afraid of the dark web and, you know, of it being used for nefarious purposes. So I often find that cryptocurrencies get in the way of being able to have the sort of conversation that I'd like to have with policymakers and decision makers. But, you know, I think that there's a lot of education needed to, to help people understand the difference between the volatile cryptocurrencies and the ICOs and what they are, and then the purposes that blockchain can be put to um, that are going to improve the way that we provide services to citizens, communicate with citizens, um, are able to connect uh, hard to reach populations into the economy. So there's many, many applications of blockchain and a lot of them will be relevant to countries like Australia, particularly around 
government and city applications, obviously my focus is on emerging economies because I think that's where you'll see the really big impact and that's where I see the really big need. But I do find it's a constant education process and I have to say that quite frequently when I get in front of policymakers and you know, representatives of international organisations, it's often quite a struggle to have the conversation that you want to have. Um, but I would also say, and in fact, I'm going to be posting on it over the next couple of days, mm. we also need to think about cryptocurrency in two important ways for social good. So one is the speculation and people are effectively gambling with the cryptocurrencies. But the second one is, first of all, a new source of philanthropy and impact investing and money for social impact projects. Because what we're seeing a lot of now is you've got the new wealthy crypto millionaires and billionaires, many of whom have acquired money quite rapidly without a great deal of effort, and many of whom are quite socially engaged and interested in seeing the world as a better place. And so they're interested in either investing or donating some of their crypto wealth to social projects. So we're seeing a lot more of that happening. Um, in terms of mm. a new source of finance for social development, I think we can't um, rule out cryptocurrencies there. The other thing that is probably less well understood, um, and that'll be my next post after the crypto philanthropy, is actually really trying to think about and understand the uh they're calling them decentralised autonomous communities that are that are enabled to be created using blockchain and tokens to connect people around a project or around an issue. Because this is going to be a major social restructuring that enables people to move beyond the boundaries of our traditional sovereign state government and organise with much bigger groups of people around the globe um, and express their opinions, invest, vote, choose projects um, that are important to them. And uh, Jamie Burke made a post on with his Outlier Ventures about two weeks ago on this, and anyone who's interested should read that post. It's a really excellent post. Um, and I'm keen to... Jamie Burke, OK. Uh, because this is, these will be new forms of social organisation, they won't be able to be regulated by government that will be able to form outside of sovereign boundaries. So that's going to create, uh, I think, both good uh, social change and probably challenges for governments because they're not going to be able to regulate. And I don't think that many people are understanding this or thinking about it yet. Absolutely. I mean, I would totally agree. I think it's a huge mindset shift for people to actually get their head around groups of people globally following a project that they are all aligned on that has nothing to do with where they are geographically located, that they're all getting behind and that they can all tokenise and be, be a supporter for. And, yeah, that will, I think, really challenge governments, particularly governments that haven't been able to address specific problems and issues that we've got. You know, I mean, have you have you seen any specific applications out there that you think have got real legs in that space? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think one of the ones that will uh, probably take off quickly are around um, environment and climate change because 
despite whether our governments believe in it or not, and, and many do and many don't, there's a whole lot of people around the globe who are concerned around the planet. So I actually think what you're going to see is social movements emerging around specific aspects of the environment, whether it's rainforest degradation or reef degradation or green energy. Those are the ones that I think will move fastest, but I don't think that they'll be the only ones. I think that there are other ideas that are powerful ideas. Um, you know, one that I'm involved in is the Global uh, World Blockchain Academy for Girls, which is really around a big idea that mm -hmm. it's important that, that we get girls involved in coding and STEM education right from the beginning, almost like a language that you start to learn when you go to school. In the olden days, we had reading, writing and arithmetic. Now we need for our kids and our girls in particular because there's a sort of, uh, I guess there's some social stigma around girls getting involved in science and tech and code, actually normalising for everyone being able to learn coding, computer technology, STEM, right from the minute that they go into school. Because I read, um, I actually posted the other day something from Jack Ma uh, at the World Economic Forum, which is something that I agree with, but he's obviously got a, a bigger listening audience than me, and he's saying, <laughs> <laughs> in our schools, we're educating children for the last 200 years, not for the oh. next years and I really believe that and I really think if there's something that you know I'd like to be advocating for in our own country and all around the world our education system is failing to prepare our children for the future that they're already living in it's extraordinary isn't it and it's it's almost it's like watching a slow train wreck isn't it you just you're thinking I don't understand why you're still working with this curriculum when clearly the world is asking for skills in this space and they're not offering it. I mean, how does Australia fare? I personally feel it's, I've got my own opinions, but, but what's your thought? I, I watched the same Jack Ma conversation and, and found it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been talked about for a decade. It, it doesn't seem to change things, Jane. Look, I think we fare badly, and I think we fare badly for a couple of reasons. One is because we're too comfortable, and that's why I think blockchain's going to move faster in emerging markets, because mm. they don't have systems that work well enough. We do. We don't actually have that many problems. And so you're going to get a lot of resistance to something that's going to be a change. I think the other thing, too, is just, you know, really downright ignorance on the part of most people, you know, probably from 30 up, that these changes are taking place and that they're there. And they've been brought up with the idea you get your kids into school, they get the best sort of OP or year 12 result that they can, and then they go to university and they study a university course and then they can get a job. It just doesn't work like that now. But I think there's a whole generation of people who still think that that's so. Therefore, that's what the school's trained for because that's what the parents demand of the schools. They want the kids to get a good OP so that they can go to university. So there's a whole, um, I think, a whole education revolution needed, not just in the education system, but for parents 
and for policymakers to understand that what we're teaching our children today is not preparing them for the world of tomorrow. Because you would be aware many of the jobs that we're training our children for these days either won't exist, will be significantly changed or significantly reduced. If you think about um, accounting, legal, advertising, all of these things are going to be significantly reduced relative to the professions that now exist. Notaries, for example, won't exist. Why do you need a notary if you've got um, mm. an immutable identity that proves that you're you? You don't need 36 pieces of paper in a notary to say that you're you. So a lot of these things are going to change and I don't think people understand that. Yeah, I do think it's a huge education piece, but I think you're right. I actually think kids are far more aware, particularly teenagers, having teenage kids myself, about what is on going on out there. I, perhaps they're a little bit biased because of my background, but they're just, it's the other parents. It's the parents that I think struggle with the new information they're in their you know, they're kind of nine to five system and nine to five jobs, not necessarily a huge part of the economy. And they're driving the education system. And it, it is sad because, you know, Australia's got a lot to offer. I think we've always been very creative as a, as a culture. And, um, you know, what Jack Ma talked about, if we go back to that conversation, was what we need to start supporting and encouraging is openness and problem solving and critical thinking and creativity and get your children involved in the arts. And I know for a fact that, you know, arts for a long time have been completely um, criticised as not producing jobs for kids. And I think, well, I just think, it, you know, there are other perspectives and, and I'm hoping that that, you know, that that comes into the ecosystem a lot faster. I mean, I keep thinking exponential change of blockchain will actually just hit people in the head. Well, I think the thing that Jack Ma was trying to say there that I just want to underscore is that machines are going to be able to take on almost any kind of routine or process task that human beings can now do and probably do it better. Yeah. So the point making is then you need to focus on those creative elements, those compassionate elements, those things about human creativity and feeling that a machine's not going to be able to learn and focus on that part of human endeavour because machines are going to be able to read radiology slides better than radiologists can. They're going to be able to process contracts faster than lawyers can. But what they're not going to be able to do is deal with that human interaction and that whole creative side of thinking that... Um, you know, I guess hasn't been valued so much in human endeavour before. And I think that's what he was saying is just take away all the routine stuff and then think about what those things are that essentially make us humans that is going to be important and valued and necessary into the future because that's where the opportunities will be. Mm. And, I mean, what a beautiful, what a beautiful slate to work from. Focus on being human. Focus on the best part of being what's being human. I always think, God, the... The possibilities are endless if you look at it like that. No, I agree. The other, the other, I'd just like to share one other small story because, you know, we're, we're all on this journey together and, you know, I've been a parent too and, and I was challenged always when my son was a teenager, 
because he was always playing World of Warcraft. And everything that I grew up with told me that playing too much computer games is bad and he shouldn't play too much computer games and he should go and study because he needs to go to university. And it's really fascinating to me to now understand that First of all, there is now an occupation called a gamer. Yes. And the best earn more than a million dollars a year. So actually he was preparing himself for an occupation I didn't yet know existed. The second thing is that some of the leading tech companies of the world today actually met playing World of Warcraft. So he was meeting his future cohort of successful business leaders playing World of Warcraft. And the third thing... I actually read in the Harvard Business Review that they're writing up World of Warcraft and saying that you learn better business leadership skills playing that game than you do in any MBA program because it teaches you leadership, you've got to get your teams together, you've got to be agile, you've got to incentivise people to do what you want them to do. All of the kind of critical business success skills are in that game. So but that really turning everything that we ever thought upside down and on its head. And I've only realised that in retrospect. I did not encourage my son to play World of Warcraft or become a gamer. Um, And I guess I'm a bit disappointed in myself. I know, but don't be too hard on yourself. I'm right now, I've got a, a boy in year 11 and a girl in year 10. And my son is a fantastic gamer and he would love to spend a lot of time gaming. And it's that it's that juggle, isn't it? It's that feeling of, well, actually, I know that the gaming's not that bad for him. I'm actually aware of that now. But I also know he's got any, a huge amount of work that he has to deliver to get this VCE mark. And so I sit there thinking you know, what's what's the conversation that you would suggest that people have with their kids when I know that this conversation is happening Australia-wide? I, look, I think that that's really tough because I think that I think there's a reality that our children are going to face, which is getting a university degree does not necessarily lead to a job and increasingly won't lead to a job. Mm. So the whole conversation about how we encourage entrepreneurship, how we get kids thinking about how they can start up their own businesses and create their own jobs and create their own companies and whether or not you need to complete school or university to do that. Um, I know my son runs co-working spaces and works with incubators and accelerators and he has programs for young entrepreneurs in school and some of these kids are 16 years old and have got businesses that are making money, that have got a future, and they're in exactly the same situation that you're talking about where they're kind of coming to this detente with their parents where they're finishing school, not because they think they need to because they're already on a track that's going to get them somewhere, but there's this huge social pressure that at least you need to finish school. So I I think unpicking all of that and then thinking about you know, what are the success factors, if you like, for the future and how do we prepare our kids for that and how are we brave enough, you know, to allow them to do that because, you know, there's always the risk that that doesn't work out, as you know, and then you Mm. feel because you didn't push them to finish school. So it's pretty tough being a parent, but we all know that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the one thing that I often cry out for is I wish there was more entrepreneurship 
courses to take at school because I think kids would learn a lot from it. It's real life information. They could apply it in real life, in real time and see whether they like it or not because it is so relevant. But, you know, I know that there are there are programs outside of schools that kids can kind of attach themselves to and some elite schools offer it. But on the whole, it's not there. So I do think that entrepreneurship skill is huge. And, you know, it's something that I really hope that I can start to encourage a bit more for, you know, for my kids. I'm also aware you're quite a champion for women working in the blockchain space. And I know of a few women who are. And, you know, how do you get more women into the space, which is largely dominated by men? Most tech companies are. You know, what, what do you think the main challenges are there? Well, look, I think there's a few. I think the first one is what I said earlier, which is socially we tend to weed girls out of science and technology before they even get into it. So I, I think that there's a there's a kind of social shaping of norms where boys do science and, and engineering and girls do humanity. So that's the first thing that I'd like to see change by Everyone just does coding in STEM right from the beginning of school. It's just a core skill that you get from, you know, the minute that you start education till the minute you finish it because then you're not weeding them out and then there's greater chance that they're going to be involved in it. But the second thing that I'd say, um, I must say I'm not as judgmental as, as some people about the fact that there's more men in crypto and blockchain. That's just what happened. That's the history of this. That's how it happened. I don't think that that's something to complain about. I think that that's something to, um, first of all, make sure that we get women understanding the opportunities in tech for them. And they don't have to be the developer. They can be the person who builds the community. They can be business analysts. They can be, you know, operations people. They don't have to be the tech developer. But they need to see tech um, as an industry that they can be involved in. And one of the things that yeah. I'd like to see more of is we have very few really credible role models of successful women in tech. And when you see, you know, Big Bang Theory and Silicon Valley, the women are almost always, you know, like Penny out of the, the Big Bang Theory who's kind of blonde and ditzy. And, blonde and ditzy. Yeah. And so I think we need to be aware. We need to have more real people who are working in blockchain standing out there and saying, hey, this is okay. There's nothing scary about this. You can do it. You can be part of it. So that's where, you know, I see that I can play a role. And I think the, you know, the last one is just about self-confidence. I don't think that girls naturally, and whether it's about how we prepare them or whether it's because we haven't taught them entrepreneurial skills, I don't know that they're quite so ready to just leap off the precipice and have a go, you know, with their own startup. So I think we have to do a lot more to give them courage and to encourage them and also for them to think about because the one thing that I think tech's got absolutely going for it is that it's a career that you can do and have a family because it can be incredibly flexible yeah. you don't have to work night you don't have to go to an office you can kind of fit the work in around the needs of your family and still be successful so I actually think Tech offers a huge amount for women, but people perhaps haven't seen it in that way. So I just think we need to talk about it and we need to show um, young women, other women who've done it, who are doing it, and to be able to talk about, you know, how they manage. Because one of the things that I find when young women want to talk to me 
as a mentor or just to get advice, invariably it's that challenge between can I have a career and can I have a family? Mm -hmm. Um, And my answer is absolutely yes, but you need to talk them through it. And I think everyone has to understand that it, it is difficult, that you've got to be really committed to it, but that you can work it out and, you know, that it's possible to do both. And I just think that that's something they need to be able to talk to other people who've been through that journey that give them the confidence that they can actually work that through and be a good mother and have a successful career. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've noticed that there, I know you're a part of the Women in Blockchain International group and it's been lovely hearing some of the stories of of kind of women's journeys that have led them to working in the blockchain space and they haven't all been techie, which I thought was great. I mean, they've come from lots of different backgrounds and blockchain certainly something, blockchain technology seems to be certainly something that's binding people together, but they've come from marketing backgrounds business backgrounds, tech backgrounds, and and really the momentum there to get a big global community of women helping each other out. I don't think it's ever, I haven't seen it on another platform. I, I don't know about you, but it, it's it, there's a huge amount of support there for women trying to, to work in this space. What do you think? Yeah, look, I think so, but I think there's, there's two pieces to that. One is that I think blockchain demands collaboration. Because however you look at it, it's it's going to be decentralised. It relies on a community of people to be able to operate. And so that that idea that everyone's got to be able to collaborate to make this successful is a really important and different idea to most of the business models in the past. And I think that the second one is that technology has given us those tools for collaboration that didn't exist before. So some of these platforms, whether it's Telegram or Slack, where people can come together and chat, share conversations, post things, and it can become, you know, as big as you want and anyone can join in, those kinds of things didn't exist before. And and I think so. we now have those platforms that allow us to connect with people all around the globe about things that we're interested in and then set up communities to discuss them. And I think that makes a really big difference as well. Yeah, I think it's going to be a huge leveraged opportunity to actually address some of those social and economic problems that we were talking about before. And I mean, on that note, I'm aware that, you know, cities will become much more important and an important point of governance than, you know, we now know as government. 70% of people will be living in cities by 2040, is that right? I mean, it's a huge number anyway. So a huge number of pressures. And I'm thinking, how do you feel cities will be placed in the future as against, say, these big monolithic federal governments or national governments? Well, look, I I think that that's yet to play out. So my prediction would be city governments will be much more important And people will want their city governments to do things for them because that's where they live. They'll want services, they'll want security, they'll want transportation, you know, they'll want electricity. And so so I think cities will really be um, the most connected form of government that citizens are interested in. I think the future of the sovereign state is a very interesting question and, and I don't know how that's going to play out. Remembering that the sovereign state is a relatively modern concept anyway, I think it's going to be mm. interesting to see as cities form and become more important, 
what becomes the role of what we would now call a federal government? Um, because I think some of the things that federal governments now do, they're probably not going to need to do in the future. And then what is their role? And I think the other question that I grapple with and I don't know the answer to is if you don't have sovereign states, then who gets together when there's like a major global epidemic or, you know, a major military action that threatens the world happening? So, you know, we've been living through 100 years or so where we've had the United Nations and we've had these groupings of states which come together and, and they think about the world and they make decisions and put sanctions on people. If that doesn't exist, then how do different communities around the world organise and come together where some sort of really important global collaboration is needed? I don't know the answer to that, but what I, what I do believe is the fact that people can form and organise outside of geographic boundaries is going to put pressure on what we now talk about as the sovereign state. Yeah, and certainly having the opportunity to be their own bank, so have their own identity by consensus and be their own bank, which can't be taken down by any government, is a huge, kind of a huge part of that future. And that's why I often think, gee, what is the future of a national nation state? They're so aligned with money, power and politics, and they're often not even representing what the people of the, of the state or country want. So for me, I find that a really fascinating future for the application for technologies like blockchain and others that, that will really disrupt what's going on out there. Yeah, I was reading something today that's not yet published, but just because we're talking about it, that this was a, you know, a sort of theoretical positing of what, what actually could happen um, with these blockchain decentralised autonomous communities, which is... yeah that people could actually exit the nation state and opt into these other communities. So, you know, people are thinking about it and writing about it. So I do think it's something that, that will challenge us and we will debate and consider for the next several years once people realise what's going on. But my other hope, just back to the cities, because I think cities are really important, you know, I want to find a really motivated mayor who says, I want to transform my city and I want to look at how I can get all of my citizen services onto the blockchain with a single identification where people can connect with any service that they want from government so that I can improve my relations with my citizens, speed up government services, make the financial tra transactions frictionless and immediate, and really improve the way that my city operates. So you're seeing some of that in uh, certainly Dubai, which is saying it's going to go totally paperless by 2020. The city of Ottawa yeah. really fast. I think Singapore, um, Delaware, the state of Delaware in the US is starting to look at this stuff. But that's where I think big changes will happen. And the good thing about cities is all you need is a really motivated mayor to be able to... Yeah. So... I'm optimistic. That and what's really important about that is the governance of the local mayor and that, that they actually have a decent length of time to execute some of the, the work that they're trying to do to create more engagement, to ensure that the citizens have got 
all people have got access to the utilities and the services that the you know that the town is providing. So I mean, what changes? So say looking through a um, crystal ball, what what changes do you expect to see in the next ten years in the economy or globally? I mean, I think I think you're right. I think Australia is more apathetic, but I'd be I'd be interested to see to hear about what you think what what changes you'll see we'll see globally. Well, I think you only need to look at Estonia and Eastern Europe to see what's possible. But again, they were countries that came out from under communism. Their economies were poor. They had high levels of motivation to be able to change. Um, you know, obviously Estonia is the pin-up girl or boy for digital. But to see what they've done in 10 to 15 years with their economy, uh, with citizens access services with a single identity and it gives them access to government services. You can actually become an Estonian resident in about 10 minutes by registering, so they're welcoming people to come to Estonia and set up businesses. You know, I think that that's the example. But the other thing that I find so interesting about Estonia is that the cost of digitisation is so much less than the cost of the traditional old-school hardware, software infrastructure that we think about. And so that's where I would, you know, really be trying to encourage people like mayors to look at what it's actually going to cost to go digital because you don't need all of that big infrastructure that you've needed to run your systems Mm. before. So I was reading somewhere recently that, you know, people are predicting that blockchain growth will be fastest in Asia. I believe that. Um, A, you know, I think that, they're very, very uh, progressive economies, but they've got a lot of problems that have to be overcome. And so maybe it'll be an Asian city that's going to go faster than we will. So I don't want to predict for Australia because I, I think it's a bit disappointing that Australia is going so slowly and is so reserved. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that other places are going to move faster and in ways that, you know, we don't necessarily understand i think you might have seen i posted that venezuela is now looking at a government-backed cryptocurrency backed by their oil reserves so countries are going to start doing things that are really outside the boundaries of what anyone ever considered was possible before so Mm. we just have to learn and and as much as possible try and make sure that people understand the risks of what they're doing and help the lessons get out there so that we can share them with others who are thinking of doing similar things. Yeah. I don't know whether I'd buy into a Venezuelan um, cryptocurrency, but that's just my opinion, Jane. I don't know. There's there's a few others out there that I think I'd probably be investing in for then. But listen, what can I say? It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I really mean that. I'm honoured that you make the time to talk and you know, what I believe really are critical issues facing society today, but not just in Australia, around the globe. And your thought, leadership and guidance you're providing is truly admirable. I mean, I, I watch you on the Telegram channel and I think you've just been fantastic. And I'd love to see some traction very soon on some of the issues we've talked about today and have you back on the show again later this year to see where you're at and talk through, I'm hoping, some of the advances we've made in terms of education and health and the application of blockchain tech in in general in Australia. I mean, I'm a bit like you. I'm not as positive as I am about global trends, but I, I still want to be the optimist and, and hope things are going to happen 
a bit faster in 2018. But thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure, Lizzie, and I hope that this is the year we move from hype to execution so that at the end of the year I will have some great stories to tell you. Thank you so much. That's great. 